You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Timur to talk to us about the history of the Hui Muslims from China. Thank you for joining us. Timur is in the Silk and Steel podcast with Carl Zah, right? Oh, no, no, that's not me. No, no, that's, that's just Carl. So I, I run a podcast that's just only about Australian Chinese stuff. What's your it's podcast called? By Joe Billabong. My host, you probably don't like my host because um, he's that white dude who go, he just says, uh, has arguments with you sometimes. Anyway, he, he doesn't mean it. He, he, he just, um, you know, Regan, that guy. Anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know him. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's, a, he's, he's just, uh, he's not trolling. He's just has, uh, he's a bit of a lib at times, but it's not good. Ah, got it. Okay. We, we, we just have, um, yeah, so we just basically talk about Chinese, Australian kind of stuff, mostly. One of my best friends is Australian from Hong Kong. Do you guys get along? <laughs> it depends. Um, I mean, if they're born in Australia and Hong Kong, how old they are. Um, you know, some, some Hong Kongers when I was growing up were pretty mean. They, they were like, they used to call me dirty or I was a oh, cockroach. Wow. And um, just because, you know, my, my parents are, are from mainland China. Um, it, it's very interesting because um, as, a, as a kid growing up, um, I, I, I would definitely hide that the fact that I'm from a Muslim background, Hong Kongers, because they, they were pretty Islamophobic and xenophobic. But now, now like Hong Kongers... I mean, not, not all Hong Kongers, of course, but like now, now Hong Kongers are now like sort of on the forefront of fighting for Chinese Muslims, which just makes me very confused. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I noticed that Australia has a large, uh, at least I noticed when I was there in the university, there's a lot of Chinese students. Yeah, it, it's, there's quite a few reasons. It, Australian entrance stands are much lower than, well, the competition is much lower. I mean, in, in China, you, as you probably know, you know, you, you, you you do that in history. China is a very strong academic tradition. Um, you know, studying is very important. Uh, it's one of the few ways you can sort of get up there. Um, nowadays, less so. You know, there, there are a lot of opportunities nowadays in China. But back in the old days, you know, during the pre examination system, um, studying was probably one of the few ways to get out of poverty. Um, but nowadays, you know, you can do other things. But, um, you know, students who can't compete in the Chinese system, um, they might just come to Australia or people who are rich and just don't want, you know, any effort. Um, put in or they can't just you know just can't compete they come to Australia uh, but otherwise a lot of there's a lot of Hong Kongers and Taiwanese students as well um, there's a lot of students who come here who take visas you know um, working visas because the minimum wage as you probably know you, you've, you've lived in Australia is super super high I think we're the highest in the world um, so you can actually make a profit studying here while working Oh, yeah. The minimum wage is at least 23 or $24 when I was there. So it's probably gotten up, right? Yeah, it's 20, I think it's 19 dollars or $20 um, for full time. But if you put the casual loading on, yeah, it's around that range, which is for US people. Um, that's like, wow, that's a dream, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, on my uh, second show that I really started called Sundays with Lenin, we calculated our Lenin wage. And that was um, $900,000 a year per person, if we just followed what Lennon said. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Wow. wow that would be, I wouldn't mind that. I mean, that would be pretty good. Yeah. And a six-hour workday. But um, so what I'm really curious about is that you come from the Hui 
am I pronouncing it right or wrong? Huizu. Uh, yeah, Huizu. Yeah. You, you come yeah. with the Huizu ethnicity, right? Yeah, Huizu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're probably, oh, I'm, not, I'm not sure because we're both around 10 to do 11 million. Well, the two largest, the two largest are Uyghurs and Huizu. Yeah. Um, Chinese uh, Muslim ethnicities in, um, in China. Um, we're kind of, it, it's kind of hard to describe our ethnicity. Um, we're, we're basically a lot of us from originally. Um, so a lot of people think we're just Chinese people who are Muslim, but we're not. It, it's, you have to actually have to be related. It's kind of like, like being a Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to actually have to, like a bloodline connection to someone that's Hui to be Hui. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you can't just be like a Han Chinese Muslim who converts, you know, Hui, you're just a Han Chinese guy who practices um, Islam. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of complicated. But many of us, um, usually most of us descend from Arab or Persian or Iranian people who came to China during Genghis Khan's time. Ah, uh, that's where my family comes from. Yeah. So actually, you, seem to, you said that your family had records going back a long time. So I would just love for you to just talk about whatever you know about your family. <laughs> yeah. Um, so our family's surname um, is Tia, which means metal. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the first dude was this. Pashtun um, speaking Persianized Turk. I'm not sure how verifiable this is because um, it's just when your family, you know, Persianized people, they, they have really long histories and they try to connect them with very famous people. But this guy's not very famous. And his name was uh, Temur as well, Bengal Temur. And he was a smith. Is that yeah. also Genghis Khan's real name? No, that's Temujin. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's it's cut. You know, it sounds yeah. I know which, uh, you probably easily. Um, and he was a smith or craftsman that uh, came with uh, one of Genghis's armies down to uh, an area called Dengzhou. Um, it's in Hunan in central China, as part of like the soldier sort of the corpse, and they settled down farming. And during the Yuan Dynasty, you know, there was a huge caste system where the top people were ruled by Mongols, and there were the sort of Arab Persians or the Somu or people with coloured eyes. That's how so we're the second level in caste. And a third level caste were like the sort of the northern Chinese. Then the fourth level were like the southern Chinese because they surrendered last. Um, and, you know, it's kind of oppressive. And, you know, people, I mean, I'm, I'm being very generalized here. People eventually rose up. The Han Chinese, you know, they rose up. And the Sermu, um, some of them chose to side the Mongols. Some of them chose to side with the Han, you know. And our family ended up choosing to side with the um, Han Chinese as, um, you know, military officers. And uh, at the start, it was pretty good. I think my ancestor, my the, the main ancestor that's most famous our family called Tiesuan. He's a he's like I think he's famous enough to have a wiki somewhere. He basically ended up as minister of defense for the whole country. What before? Uh, is this still around after Kublai Khan, or is it? Um... Oh, this is after the fall. So a lot of Muslims ended up supporting the first Ming emperor, Hongwu. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's very good. So Hongwu, a lot of people like secretly think a lot of Ming emperors are Muslim. Because mm-hmm. Hongwu was like, because he had so many Muslim generals, he was very pro-Islam. Oh, good. And he, he like, you know, allowed uh, Muslims to kill cows and stuff, which was like a big no-no and all that. Mm-hmm. And he even wrote a hundred-word eulogy to Islam, which made it even more suspicious. Because <laughs> um, a lot of his generals were, you know, Muslims. And so my my ancestor, T.S. Yuan at that time, um, you know, he, he took the, um, he... 
ended up doing really well in like academics and became like a scholar. Mm-hmm. And after Hong Wu's period, um, he, he died quite well, elderly, I guess. What happened was he gave the throne to his uh, grandson because his first son died early. But this really angered the emperor, the, the prince in the north, well, which is the area of Beijing, Beijing, the prince of Yan, uh, Yong Le. And this is what started the Jinnan incident or Jinnan campaign. So basically what happened was the uncle of the emperor uh, rose in rebellion because he's like, oh man, I, I like fought all the Mongols for like, you know, 20 years. Why are you giving a friend to this little kid down in Nanjing? And he basically just won every battle until he came to Shandong, which is like this, where the area of Confucius is from. Mm-hmm. And that's where my uh, great ancestor, I think like something like 17th ancestor. Oh, hold on. I just wanted to make sure we are in around four, year 1400, 14, right? 1400s, yeah. And he... Um, Outsmarted, he was the like one of the first people to actually outsmart Yongle Emperor. He was he basically put um, the names of the old emperor Hongwu, the previous emperor, on plaques on the walls. So the Yongle Emperor basically couldn't fire the walls because uh-huh. you know it's against like his ancestors. And he also pretended to surrender as well and let him in. And he tried to like ambush him. Anyway, what happened was this meant the campaign was stalled and ended up. For my ancestor being promoted to um, the Bimbu Shangshu, which is like the Minister of Defense down in China. But eventually he, the Yongle Emperor was, you know, he, he, he just figured out he could just go around it and went around the other way and conquered Nanjing. And his death was pretty famous. He, um, so Tia Xuan was asked to surrender and he was like, yo, I'm not surrendering to a usurper like you. So he, he refused to look at Yongle Emperor when he surrendered. Okay. So he gouged his eyes out. Oh, wow. Um, uh, cut his, like, all his body parts <laughs> off and put him in an oil frying pan. And when he was floating in the frying pan, being burnt to death, apparently he still refused to look at the young emperor and died. And our family ended up um, being exiled, well, my, 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 my branch anyway, to the northeast in Manchuria. Ah, okay. So, ho- hold on. So, the y- Yunwei emperor is around 1400? Yeah. yeah, early 1400s. Early 1400s. So, then, because your family was not was the general the defense minister well, the legitimate emperor but you know of uh, of the um Huang, am I the Ming dynasty the Ming dynasty yeah the, the Jianwen emperor the Jianwen emperor it's very confusing uh, if you're a western yeah, okay okay Jianwen how do I pronounce it once more please Jianwen Jianwen yeah. um emperor so one was the uncle of the other right yeah he was but he he you know he he was the Prince of Yen, which is around where Beijing is. So he had a huge amount of soldiers because he had to guard the borders with the Mongols. And he also was a very sort of seasoned general himself, uh, having fought, you know, the Mongols out of China. This, so this was like the end of the Yuan period and the start of the Ming. And Yunglu, you know, he, he was also famous for sending um, the treasure ships to, um, around the world. Um, and he's, you know, assistant, um, was very famous, called Zheng He. I'm not sure him. He's also Muslim, a Muslim eunuch who was in command of the, the admiral in command of the treasure ships. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that period, a lot of is- Islamic influence, a lot of, you know, high-ranking Muslims in power. Um, so as you can see, I mean, um, at the time, um, my ancestor was described as a Semuren, which meant colored-eyed person. So you would have not had black eyes. And you would have looked quite different, you know, but eventually, because we, we lived in China, and there was also a law which uh, Hong Wu put, which was quite, you could say, is forced assimilation at mm-hmm. the end of the period. Basically, forced all Hui men to marry Han women. And basically, you had to intermix with someone else Han Chinese at that period. Um, and that's what eventually why we all look very much more Chinese now. Or, you know, the, what you think Chinese people look like nowadays. Uh, okay, so then, um, so if the men oh, married Han women, did the women convert to Islam? Yeah, you had to, basically. Oh, okay. So that's how the religion stayed. Yeah. 
and also yeah, vice versa. So it wasn't until Mao's time, I guess, when that kind of tradition kind of died uh, off. Because before then, I, I remember my grandma married my grandpa from like five cities away mm -hmm. just because they were the only like Muslims around that, that were like sort of at the same social status. Mm -hmm. so they, they would try to keep it very, very, it was kind of bad because kind of like inbreeding, but it was, you know, they wanted to keep their, their lineage quite, quite firm. <laughs> okay, so the Ming Dynasty lasted from around 1400 to like almost 1650 or something, right? Yeah, there was a southern Ming, but that was just, you know, they, they struggled to keep it alive. Oh, okay, so what happened to the Hui Muslims around for the, I, I know it's a big question, so just pick us whatever you want to say about it. Well, we just basically, um, a lot of us got assimilated in. It, it depends. So the Hui name itself is a very umbrella term, 100% supported. Um, it basically just means back then we became from the colored eye people became ended up becoming the Hui. I mean, they, they used to call Jewish people Hui as well. Anyone that was from the Middle East was called Hui, Hui, Hui. And eventually we, because we became more and more Chinese looking, but we still kept a lot of our customs. Like we, we you know, we would wear a takia, um, you know, we, we would dress differently. We would, you know, worship Allah and, you know, and we were still different and we built mosques um, wherever we went. You know, we didn't eat pork. They, they still notice our differences, so we kept different from the rest of the Chinese community, but we still assimilated, like, you know, we still took part in the exams. We were given quite favorable treatments at times. Um, like they, they would give um, extra spots in the exams just for um, Muslims to keep us pacified. A lot of us, because we're such a wide group, though, that's the biggest problem. Because, you know, I, I have absolutely no connection to a Hui Muslim from, say, Yunnan, the south, southwest. They're actually Mongol, the descendants of Mongol Muslims. So... Then I have no connection to say a Hui from Yunnan. Uh, not Yunnan, sorry, from Hainan, which is you know, the island of the south, because they're actually um, Cam Muslim refugees um, fleeing from Vietnamese um, sort of genocide down south. So it's, now it's become quite an overbranching term for certain groups, but from usually the northern plains, we're usually descended from the Arabs and Persians. And we basically became more sinof sinified. Mm -hmm. I, I guess. I don't know. From some reason, everyone I meet that's Hui Chinese um, seems to have a family member that made some kind of Iranian-based medicine, some kind of paste, or they were either a soldier or a doctor or something like that. They were quite well off, actually, I think, compared to the rest of the Han Chinese, just what it seems like, but quite well educated. Um, I don't know. I'm pretty proud of my heritage, but I, I know that's... Oh, you should be. One question. It seems like China has a second, not a second, but a different group of Muslims who are are from like the Turkic regions where they speak, I, I guess. Xinjiang, yeah. Yeah. Did they come around the same time or did they come at a different time? Uh, that's a lot more complicated. So the Uyghurs, well, they, they sort of arose around the Tang Dynasty. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, my, my family, you know, we're, 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 pas we're passionate speaking Persianized Turks. So we're, we're technically also Turkish a long time ago, but not anymore. Um, Turkey, I mean. Um, but the Uyghurs, they were Buddhists originally until they became uh, Muslims, um, which is why you, you find a lot of, I mean, even before the Uyghurs, that area was quite a strong uh, Muslim period. Have you, um, you know the anime Dragon Ball Z? Yeah. Dragon Ball? Yeah. Well, that's based off Jedi to the West, which is, you know, the Monkey King. Oh, um, I did not know that. Yeah. And that, the area they travel through is basically, a, a big part of it is through Xinjiang. And that's a lot of, um, you know, Buddhist, um, imagery and Buddhism er in that area during the Tang Dynasty. So you really have to go back to the start of how, how the Turkish people or the Turkic people arose in in the, near the Chinese borders and between Mongolia and China and sort of Central Asia area. Um, and then, well, 
you know, that, that would take probably 50 episodes <laughs> of talking because um, even that's a very sort of, um, a lot of the records are written in Chinese. Uh-huh. Um, I think the word originally we had for Turks were tujue, which is type of helmet because it was sort of like a spiky helmet they used to wear. And a lot of Chinese scholars at the very start didn't really notice the difference between them and the other sort of Hunnic or Mongolic, proto-Mongolian looking people. And uh, eventually, the Tang Dynasty, which is, um, I think a lot of people say it's the golden period of China. They kind of, they would ally or not ally with the Uyghurs. Uh, I'm not a Dorian. And some, in some way around, I think the Uyghurs actually helped the Tang Dynasty push out the, um, the Gok Turks mm-hmm. to, the, to the West, which led the Turks going to the Western uh, side of the world. Somewhere along that lines, the Uyghurs um, also then eventually, you know, pushed out the Han Chinese people in that area as well. It, it's such a long period, like, but basically they didn't really take over much of Xinjiang. They mostly rule around the southern part of it, mm-hmm. uh, the more arid or Altisha sort of area, uh, you know, o- oasis states. And if you want to talk about, say, Hui and Uyghur relations, it's not very good. I, that's what uh, I heard too. I, I'd say because when the Qing dynasty came back, um, the Manchu rule dynasty came over back to Xinjiang, they settled a lot of Hui Chinese. Well, there were a lot of Hui Chinese already there, but a lot of them sided with the Manchus as well in a lot of rebellions. The funny thing is, though, like a lot of people don't know that, is the Uyghurs actually helped the Manchus in a way uh, conquer Xinjiang or the Chinese dynasties. Yeah. I, I just kind of want to keep it a little bit within the timeline. So after the Ming dynasty, the other dynasty was the Qing dynasty from Manchu, right? Yeah, the Manchus. Yeah. Or Manzu. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, so now we're around the year 1600 or 1630 to like 19 whatever. So there were some Muslims who supported the Ming dynasty and some who supported the... Was there a civil war? Like, what happened there? Oh, when the, the overturn of the um, Ming... The Ming Ying. Yeah, I mean, actually a large part of the um, Muslims supported the Ming dynasty um, during that period. Um, they were actually quite patriotic and considered them Chinese, especially the Hui. You, you, you start realizing that's like a kind of a trend after the Hui became more Chinese. They became quite pro-China. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that probably could, could also come down to me as well. But, but my family actually, um, we were, I think my family, the, the, the Tia family, were actually the, I think the first Muslim Chinese down in the Northeast because we were exiled because of our... Because you were supporting the Ming dynasty, right? Uh, no, no. Because my family at that time period, uh, remember how he was the defense minister and he yes. got executed gruesomely? There, his descendants got exiled to the Northeast. So he ended up joining the Manchus ah. and helped conquer the Ming dynasty of the Manchus. And that's actually how our family refound our fortune. Like revenge. Yeah, revenge. We built the first mosque um, uh-huh. in the capital city of Shenyang or Mukdan. You can still there today, the seven, seven um, Shenyang Mosque. It's the oldest mosque in the north standing. Okay, so in the link description, we're going to put a picture of the mosque. So what happened was when, when the Manchus were uniting the Northeast and uniting all the other Manchu tribes, they defeated and they captured a lot of Han Chinese, uh, Chinese cities on the borders. And it just so happened my family was living in sort of Shenyang or Mukdan at the time in the, sort of that area and you know and he and they just decided to join up and because you know we could speak chinese and we were quite you know had a sort of military lineage um we, we did quite well and uh it was probably pretty horrible what they did because it's from from the from the books he said something like we helped them sack and loot china and eventually that allowed us to get a, um a sort of peerage called a uh sort of like a knightish ship, like a cavalry commandant, which gave us enough funds to build a the big mosque down in Shenyang. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it wasn't a nice period. We also got promoted quite high into sort of 
uh, the military rankings again because of that money. There was actually a period where there was actually a Tianfu in Shenyang, so a um, actual sort of governance mini palace for our family in the area. Of Shenyang, but you know it was quite different from the already Muslims that were living inside the Ming Dynasty.、Uh, most of them actually started the Ming, the Chinese Han Chinese Dynasty. But for the peasants themselves, I mean, they, these are just、um, you know feudal wars between two ruling families. In the end of the day,、um, a lot of peasants didn't really care as long as they could get like、um, you know some feed or some mouth, like some something to like food in their mouth, you know. So they just supported whichever side gave them better benefit, like living standards at the very end of the day.、So、that sounds very Marxist. <laughs> I mean, no. If you look at it, because like you know, like oh, the peasants,、uh, you know, little let's say little, little Wang Dong or something. He's just sitting down there. He's like, oh, look, these guys on the horses coming. What what does that do for me? If they don't kill me and just let me farm and eat whatever, I'm happy. But because at the mean, end of the Ming Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty was was at a very Was very poorly governed. There was so many social issues going on. I mean, the fall of the Ming itself is is just a huge study itself.、Uh, if I was a peasant back then, I would probably would have risen up as well and supported whoever would have offered me the best hopes of living at my life. And I think it's because a lot of、uh, Muslims were quite privileged at that time, and it's probably one of the reasons why、um, they supported the Ming. But yeah. So I guess a lot of them were the I guess the warlord. I guess. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of warlords, but、um, the, the the transition between Ming and Qing it, it's very complicated. There were various factions. So I guess I was, so. You guys were kind of the warlords. <laughs>、uh, no, no, just officers. We're not that high ranking by by then.、Um, but it it showed that、um, the the, the Manchus were quite lenient. Like if you supported them, you know, they they didn't care that we practiced Islam in in their capital city and built mosques there. <laughs> as long as you helped them, they're like, yeah, okay, you know, we'll give you a share of the spoils. So. To this day, that area we built the mosque around has still has a very thriving Hui Chinese Muslim community. It's something we're quite proud of. But you have to think about that. We, we built that of sort of the blood and sweat and the money we stole off just innocent people we killed, and、um, that is kind of sad, I guess. But yeah, I, I guess everyone does that in the 1600s. I mean, there's a difference between before capitalism and after capitalism because before capitalism there were all small scales and you didn't have opium wars or. Actually, do you know what happened to your family during the Opium Wars? Were Muslims equally affected, or were there like, you know, how Islam discourages alcohol often unless you pray? Well, my family wasn't very affected by it, I guess. Because okay, know, well, my, my I drink now. I'm I'm very bad. I'm very bad Muslim. What I noticed with Indian Muslims, like what I noticed, is that they often just take their personal opinions and decide that it's pro. Like if they don't want to drink, they'll be like, "Islam does not allow drinking." But then, if you ask another Muslim who drinks, they're like, "Yeah, Islam totally allows." It. And so often they just like <laughs> it's their personal opinion, but they claim it's from Islam. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of same with、um, Hui Muslims nowadays. I mean, especially the later generation. If my grandma or grandpa, like you know, they weren't, they're not there. We just drink. <laughs> But if my grandma's there, like no, no, we wouldn't definitely wouldn't dare drink that or, you know,、uh, do a lot of things. But、um, it's becoming less and less、uh, traditional, I guess, within the Wei community. And in itself, I, I guess we, we're becoming more and more secular than even before.、Mm-hmm. I mean, during the during the Qing Dynasty,、uh, we actually moved away from Mecca due to a lot of racism from.、Um, Going on a Hajj,、um, and we sort of、uh, the Hui Chinese actually instituted a more very very progressive changes in our own sort of communities, especially in the Eastern Seaboard area, where we allowed um, females um, to lead、um, worship and become imams. Wow! And we're still the only people, only、um, Islamic people in the world to do that. 
to this day. And it, it's a bit of a contentious issue. It's funny because we used to get praised a lot by Westerners, uh, especially liberal sources going, oh yeah, these people are so, so, you know, progressive, you know, yeah, you go queen. But nowadays, you know, we're being seen as like patsies of the pro, pro-genocide Muslims or something. Of course, genocide. In like the span of five years. Yeah, <laughs> that's how liberals do it. Yeah, that's always the same BS because in the Soviet Union, they go, I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter if it's like a hostile country. If you are secular, they'll complain about how you're oppressing Islam and committing genocide. And if you're not secular, they'll complain about how you're oppressing women and committing feticide or whatever. <laughs> so, oh, really? It, literally, that's what happens. I've noticed um, American propaganda because it's like they'll always find something bad. When the Soviets cracked down on the Nazi Catholic priests, the Soviets banned religion. Wow. That was the way they spin it. And then if the Soviets kept the traditions, they'd say they, oh, the Soviets oppressing women. So it's that same bullshit. So it, with the That's West. really, wow. I mean, yeah, we see that a lot, especially, when, um, you know, if you if you read enough Western media, you just notice the hypocrisy coming in from both sides. It, from what I guess, this is my personal joke, is that whenever they see a wall or a gate, they'll just call that a prison <laughs> camp, even if it's a hospital or an apartment. Yeah, there was that um, Aspie dude. Um, he just basically made every... So Chinese schools are very secure, like mm-hmm. Chinese, even kindergartens. They have like like a little police station outside. Yeah, in, in, in India too. Um, it's just, I, yeah. I, I, it, it, yes, they have a watchman outside and then you can't come in and you have to show Maybe your... That's I- why we don't have school shootings in China, you know? Maybe that's why children are safe. Or India. Yeah, and it, it happens everywhere. So you can't just have like random, you know, child abuse people come up to the school and pick up your kids and stuff. You know, it sounds... Uh, paranoia, but you know, Chinese people really care about the next next of kin. As I've, everyone loves the kids, but Chinese people care a lot, and especially education. It's exactly like India. I'm, in India, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, education is very important, and you don't want your kids, you know, to be kidnapped or whatever during school hours. And these police stations are all around China, but for something, you know, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, that Nathan Russo guy, satellite boy. He says, no, these are definitely, you know, just police uh, making like a concentration camp, these kindergartens. I'm like, oh, God, that's just, you know, misrepresentation. Uh, Well, in India, they call them Gurkhas, but we have them in front of every single school in India, Islamic school or Christian school. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like that. And in, 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 in China, we, we have, um, we still have Hui schools, um, you know, Muslim schools for just for Chinese students. And imagine if that happened in America, there was a, a school for, for Muslims. I mean, there probably are, but that, that would probably get kicked out of the neighborhood by in some conservative areas in America. Well, uh, yeah. The only Muslim schools we have is, do you know, he's, um, his name is Gul, uh, Fatah Gulen. He has this really creepy cart. Oh, that Turkish guy. Yeah, and he has a creepy cult. That's the only Muslim school we have. Oh, I don't know the intricacies of that. I There's really nothing intricacy. He's just a creepy guy with a creepy is cult. Is he? Okay. And he's, I'm like, um, I, he's probably a CIA yeah. agent, and that's why he's not allowed in Turkey. Ah, I see. I see. Oh, yeah. He's actually, um, Gulenism was associated with that New Lines Institute. Do you know that institute? No, I'm not. Don't know. They, pu- they published a new report with like the 5,000 pages or something. I don't know. Don't worry about it. It's another one of those reports. But yeah, um, we, we can do whatever we want as we Chinese and we even get benefits to these days in China. Like it's pretty good to be Hui because if you marry a Hui person or well, you don't have to convert anymore because of sort of liberation 
and it's kind of you can't force religion on anyone else anymore in China. But if you marry a Hui person and your child is born, your child can be registered as the Hui Chinese person, and they can get extra benefits such as um, you know more grades, easy access to universities. They can get you know interest-free loans in some areas, you know, and grants and stuff, or and get positions in the government very easily because there are quotas for Hui Chinese people. And so it's very. <laughs> Um, it's something we wouldn't want to give up, uh, mm-hmm. uh, like positive positive discrimination. So just sort of affirmative action. Well, affirmative action, yes. Uh, it actually makes me feel sorry for a lot of Han Chinese people because they really don't get any benefits in society, and they're just sort of there as like worker drones. Uh, sorry if if there are any Han Chinese people listening. I mean, that is the traditional reputation of a lot of Han Chinese around the world. Yeah, it's a bad stereotype. It's not true at all. You know, there's a lot of very um, you know people. There are a lot of intelligent people. When it, every group, it's just it's a stereotype, but it, it, which is why I always laugh when people talk about Han privilege. I'm like, even in their own country, um, it's very different from, say, the affirmative actions of the Western nations, where eventually it's it just to promote this American empire to keep it stable, um, because they they have a, a much longer history of oppression and yet against the minorities than say in China. But yeah. Want more great interviews with scholars, journalists, and activists who weren't approved by Blinken's State Department? Subscribe to our Substack at historically.substack.com to check out other episodes of the podcast and our newsletter. That's historically.substack.com. Do you find yourself asking yourself, what is to be done? Well, the answer is easy if it's Sunday. Catch our live streams on Twitch, Rockfin, and YouTube to learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov by tuning in to our Sundays with Lenin on twitch.tv, rockfin.com, and YouTube. That's twitch.tv forward slash historically, rockfin.com forward slash historically, and search for us on YouTube. It is what is to be done on Sundays. I guess... There's also a different dynamic of how different groups came in in different waves. And so some were conquerors, some were conquered. And so there's so much history where it's sometimes the Chinese conquered the area. Sometimes it was the Mongols or the Safavids or whatever. And so I think that that itself makes it less black and white, for lack of a better like It's in very America, gray, yeah. Um, about who's the oppressor. You got the Manchus who basically as a very small minority ruled over you know hundreds of millions of people <laughs> then you had the mongols which are which are also very you know far less populated than the han chinese ruling over hundreds of millions and then yeah. it seems like the mongols came over to india after the, the yuan dynasty fell <laughs> well that's that's another <laughs> i mean you, you could say the timurids were mongols i mean he claimed lineage from it but i, I guess yeah in a way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess in India, the first Mongol, Mughal, Mughals, yeah. it's the same thing. It's a, a descendant, direct descendant of Genghis Khan. Yeah, I mean, they came from the Timurids, though. So it's like even like a people claiming lineage of the Timurids then claiming that. But I guess that's the same with similar to Hui Chinese. <laughs> it's a long line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so we Babur was born in not very far from the Shin. I cannot pronounce that city at all. Please teach me how to do it. I mean the province, Xinjiang. Yes. How do you pronounce it? Xinjiang. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Xinjiang. It's a soft S. Xinjiang. So Xin, it means new, and Jiang means sort of border area or new region. Yeah. yeah. So 
it seems like he's or we don't know. No one knows where he was born, but that's the idea. And then he conquered Afghanistan and in the mountain of fire or what is now modern day Pakistan. And then when they came to India, they didn't conquer, actually. They just kind of married where they would just pay a big dowry to the Rajputs and then have 500 wives. And so by the time, the right before the British came, most of the kingdoms had a Muslim ruler because of how good they were compared to. They had a very popular support among Hindus, too, because they were very tolerant of everything. And uh, you'll see this, like, there's a funniest court case from way back from Babur's grandson, who's Akbar, where this police officer um, goes into somebody's, uh, like, neighborhood, and then he starts sniffing that alcohol and then he goes and busts them. But then the judge says that he should not have been nosy by sniffing the alcohol. And so I was just trying to figure out what if there was some sort of influence or not really. Um, not not really. From what I, I understand, my family, you know, because they're from the Northeast, um, that's really... I mean, that's so. That's probably the furthest part of China away from India. Yeah, yes, that is about as far as from India as you can go. <laughs> so yeah. are you near the Gobi Desert? Uh, no, no. Northeast, like next to Russia. Oh, In fact, wait, my I'm uncle getting... had to learn Russian when he was a kid. I, I'm getting my <laughs> east and west confused. Sorry. Yeah, it's very far, like uh, near Vladivostok. Okay, got, got it. And, I, the Korean, and North Korean border. We actually have a lot of Korean relatives, actually. Um, are there Muslims? Are there Hui's in Korea now or no? Um, I, know, I know that there are Muslims in Korea, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the first Korean Muslim recorded actually died in Guangzhou, China. Uh, that that's also very much you know that historicity of that is also quite disputed, mm-hmm. um, but it's not that big no, but uh, there, there's a lot of Hui Chinese. Um, it's throughout China. You don't even know because we we just look very Chinese now. Unless you're say from the northwest area, the Ningxia Autonomous Hui sort of province region, which which funnily enough also holds the the best wine in China, the best winery, which which is very, <laughs> which is quite funny. Uh, do, do the Muslims make the wine? No, that's just a recent development to uh, okay. sell wine to the Westerners. <laughs> we're, we're also quite famous merchants. You can usually tell a Hui Chinese Muslim by their surname, mm-hmm. um, but some of them are quite common. So the surname Ma or Ma mm-hmm. is descended from Muhammad. Ah, but there's also a Han Chinese Ma, which is descended from just because some old guy called something Ma back then. <laughs> okay. And there's like uh, surnames like Din. I think that's like Duradin. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of Ch- um, Hui surnames. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I was just reading this article a little bit and I just learned this. Like apparently in the 19th century, there was some kind of famine. And then the article said the Hui communities not only survived, but took advantage of the situation to purchase Chinese children and raise them as Muslims. I mean, there was, there was also, yeah. I mean, if you go down to the, the Jiangnan region, one of the things that really stood out to me was the amount of mansions um, owned by Muslim merchants mm-hmm. down in the sort of the sort of Shanghai area, Nanjing area. Um, like you, you had all these mansions owned by, you know, people certainly like Ma and Ding and it was salt merchants and they were very rich. And it is all built around the 19th century or 18th century. And, and there's this sort of long line of, um, I guess, the Hui Chinese just um, being mercantile and getting, becoming millionaires, um, I, which is, you know, even my maternal grandmother's side, her family was one of the richest in China back in the day. There's a sort of a stereotype in a way, I guess, <laughs> back in those days. But yeah. And it, it's, not, it's not a good 
stereotype, I guess, um, you know, makes us look like wealthy. I guess that stereotype is also with, you know, a very racist stereotype with the Jews as well um, these days. Just like money, very monetarily focused. So there's the British opium wars, but were you guys ever colonized or not really? It's hard to say because, um, you know, we, we're, we're very integrated with the Chinese community. So if the Chinese community was colonized in that area, we were, we were colonized. So all I know is that my, my sisters, my, 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 my people were very patriotic and we fought back every time. So Go during on. the Boxer Rebellion, um, the Eight Nations Alliance, uh, do you know of that one? Nah, I know what the Boxer Rebellion is, but I'd love for you to tell the story because... So I think one of the few victorious, um, the, the, like the few Chinese armies that actually scored victory against the uh, Europeans was actually the Hui Chinese army. Um, mm. I think uh, the, I think um, it was like the led by Dong Fu Xiang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was led by him. So because um, they, they, the Gansu Braves... Yeah, from the northwest China, the, they were like the one of the few victorious armies in that period to actually beat the Europeans. God, um, so we're we're quite militaristic. <laughs> a lot of us ended up joining an army. Um, I know my great grandfather, my grandfather, both all my grandfathers actually, I mean, all my nearly all my great grandfathers all were in the army, and we all, they all fought against Europeans, Japanese. I'm not sure why it is like this, but even in World War Two, a lot of the the generals were also Chinese Muslims. It just seems to be a trend. Maybe it's something to do with, you know, how you had like Muslim generals just serving in various parts of the world as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know what your family did? Because World War II seems like a lot of people don't realize, but Russia or I guess USSR had 27 million deaths of like all people. The second most deaths was from the country of China, which had 20 million deaths from World War II. A lot of people don't realize that both of those countries bore the brunt of World War II. China from the East, I, uh, and Russia from the West. And what, do, what did your family do during that time? Oh, that was probably the worst period of my family's lives because we were from the Northeast in Manchuria or Manchu or Manchuria. Oh, so you were in between all the kingdoms. Yeah. So that, that was the first place Japanese invaded in um, 1931. Mm-hmm. So in, in essence, the, the Sino-Japanese War, World War II started in China um, six years or eight years earlier, depending on what European date you were going to look at in China. So... Basically, what happened is the, the Japanese should have mooked down incident where they staged a fake attack on the Japanese railway and said the Chinese attacked the Japanese railway, built railway in the area. Oh, like literally a false flag. Yeah. And then use that excuse to invade Manchuria uh, or Manchu. We don't use, like, use the word Manchuria because that's like a Japanese term as well. That um, sounds very familiar, like something like Iraq having weapons of mass destruction. Anyways. Um, or, not- or like what the Americans would do. Yeah, very similar. And then in that area, they instituted mass sex slavery. The country <gasps> women. Oh, God. You heard of? It's no, very sad. T- tell us. Uh, uh, basically, the Japanese, you know, they enslaved hundreds of thousands of Chinese, Korean, or women from all around Asia as sort of sex slaves for their soldiers to keep, you know, the morale high. Um, and these girls range from ages of like sometimes eight years old. Yeah. Yeah, it was disgusting. And they were raped hundreds of times a day. Oh, my God. Um, the Japanese to this very day um, don't admit it. And mm-hmm. they won't. And some of the survivors are nearly 90 or 100 years old. And, and um, they're still protesting for you know, compensation and recognition. Japanese government has many times called them prostitutes, saying they were willing. And I doubt an eight-year-old could be willing, but you know, it's disgusting. That was one of the atrocities. Another atrocity was the Unit 731 and all the human experimentation. So they would kidnap people off the streets and basically experiment on their bodies. They would bomb, the, like, throw grenades at live humans in, like, a lab. 
um, cut them open, vivisection, and inject them with plague or, you know, it, it was just disgusting. Like, if you look it up, the, the records of what's happened, um, the horrors, it's it's like out of a, um, it's like a horror story, what's happened. It's basically very similar to what Mengele did mm-hmm. as well. Um, and the, the sad thing is most of these war criminals that did these crimes were actually um, given um, amnesty by the Americans because the Americans wanted their data and research after World War II. I've go through the Nazi war crimes disclosure, but I haven't seen the, uh, there is a the Japanese. Japanese got off as well. A lot of them. Yeah. Cause yeah. They, yeah. So um, I, I haven't gone through the Japanese section yet, but if you're okay with it, I'd love to, like, I, I guess what happened to your family? Like, um, and um, so in 1931, my grandfather was quite young and he, he was seeing what's happening around him. So around the age of 20, he escapes Manchu, goes across the, um, the great wall into China and joins the army. And, and ends up becoming an officer because he's from, from quite a wealthy family and he, was, he could read and write. And then he goes back to Manchuria, the Manchuria, Manchuria area and fights as a guerrilla for two or three years and get, then goes back down south again um, when the Japanese invade Shanghai. Both my grandfathers fought in the war for around uh, over a decade. And after the World War II finishes, uh, what happens is my grandfather, who was actually in the KMT, the nationalist side, as an officer, ends up joining the communists as an underground operative. When his city was besieged by the communists um, in 1947-48 area in Shenyang, he actually um, organized the Hui Muslims to not um, join the, the nationalist KMT and helped the CCP or the CPC, the communists, take over the city, which is a very important city. It was like the capital city of that province. Okay. That um, what, what was your grandfather's name again? Uh, can you write it down uh, too? Tie Ting Heng. Um, he was actually listed in the newspaper article on, on, of that period. Mm-hmm. So that's 70th anniversary, and they celebrated his name like this. You know, he's the leader of the, the Chinese Muslim Association of the Northeast, which my grandfather was, helped basically, in, in a way, secretly sort of backstab the, the nationalists from behind. God. Then... He, he stayed up in China because he was a pharmacist, trained pharmacist. Mm-hmm. He was wrongly accused of revisionism during the Cultural Revolution. And, and this is the period when my grandma got really angry because she's from a very wealthy family. Mm-hmm. She lost all her... All her she's, she still complains about it to this day. Um, a very <laughs> but, you know, she's from a, like a millionaire family, um, yeah. lost all her land all that. Um, and her egg uh, monopoly. <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, not really. It was her. her I know. I was joking. I do. I don't know if you've seen the egg monopoly. Yeah, yeah that's a funny. Yeah, that's funny. As like, I actually was really worried. Egg monopoly person related to me because we had a similar surname, and <laughs> I think not. But uh, we just. I, I I didn't know my grandma was why she was angry as a kid. She just always told me she hated communism. But my mm-hmm. granddad apparently didn't really mind because he kind of betrayed them, the nationalists, and joined the communists. Then I worked it out because it, it turned out in records, who's like really like she had multiple mansions and all these servants, hundreds of servants. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that makes sense. A lot of sense. No wonder you were just a really spoiled girl. <laughs> um, but yeah, but basically the 60s, my grandfather was pr- uh, prosecuted for being, um, you know, originally a nationalist officer. Mm-hmm. And they um, broke his legs and paraded him to the streets. That kind of broke his heart for a bit because he fought against Japanese for nearly two decades. Yeah. And also joined the nationalists. But after that, he got rehabilitated during Deng Xiaoping's time because um, they needed medical experts as well, <laughs> like mm-hmm. pharmacists. And they gave him a few houses in return um, mm-hmm. as like state-owned houses. Um, and we got our fortunes back. Yeah. So how did you guys end up in Australia then? Uh, it's a long story. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, both my parents... Um, you know, that they wanted to seek yellow fortunes and they heard Australia was quite um, inviting 
mm-hmm. when they arrived, it wasn't so. My my dad got spat on in the streets by random oh my. white people. What year was yeah. this? It's like the eighties. Oh yeah. wow, wow, wow! Okay. Oh, oh my god, I, I, that's really horrible. Then. Yeah, and he he was like a trained hospital like technician. He had to like actually wash plates and stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And same as my mom, and they met, and I was born. Are, are both of them a Chinese? Hoi? Yeah, and they met in um, Australia, and it was just that's so strange. Horrible period, sort of the nineties. Um, it got a bit better mm-hmm. um, after that period, I guess. Then now it's getting worse again. Like I, I remember, two thousand and one, I was really scared because mm-hmm. there was a lot of anti-Muslim euphoria going because of nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would hide. I would just like say, "Oh no, no, no! I'm just a ch- normal Chinese person." Mm-hmm. And like I, I remember um, when I I was dating a Taiwanese girl once, and I never ever told her of, of my white background. Mm-hmm. But she got really suspicious because I, I kept taking her to like these kebab restaurants and stuff. Yeah, and she was like, "How come you know so much about like um, Chinese Muslim cuisine?" I'm like, "Oh, just know it." Because if I told her, she would have been like, "Oh my god, he's like a terrorist." <laughs> That's so <laughs> awful. It seems like your family gets double discriminated. So when the West is against Muslims, you guys get targeted. And when the West is against Chinese, you're going to get targeted again. Yeah, which is why I'm very skeptical of every time the U.S. supports any um, Islamic group. The first thing you have to check is to see if the Saudis are building. Oh, my God. The Saudis are not Islam. I'm I'm, I'm just going to say they're not Islam because they were being funded by the British. So they're soldiers of Britain and they're like white, in my opinion. But... Sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, the, the first Xinjiang Islamic insurgency actually uh-huh. um, was funded um, by the US. The CIA funded the Hui Chinese to start a insurgency in the 1950s. Were the Saudis involved too? No, no. So, so the, 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 the Hui Chinese, you know, uh, as you know, as I told you, like the, the, there's a lot of generals, right? So there was a still remnant force of Chinese Muslims in Xinjiang in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was the US... And, you know, nationalists in Taiwan, they funneled money to keep them fighting in the border, borders mm-hmm. against China and, you know, doing basic insurgency. So, in a way, the Hui Chinese were like the first extremist insurgents in that area before now what they're doing with, you know, they were, the CIA started funding the Uyghurs in the 90s. Al-Qaeda? Yeah. Um, well, not really Al-Qaeda. Uh, but, but nowadays, um, the, the, Hui, the Hui is very integrated. You know, that, that was... Um, it's interesting because there's a lot of Hui Chinese volunteers helping fight against ISIS during um, that period as well. Now, now in the modern day, so and because there's Uyghurs joining the ISIS as well, you know, fighting the Hui. So it's it just keeps going back and forth. <laughs> yeah. For me, that what's really surprised me is when I had Max Blumenthal on, and he was looking through all these national, and apparently some extremist Uyghur extremists were in Bosnia, and it's like, how did they get there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I thought they couldn't travel. You know, that's what I keep saying. And because I, I actually grew up um, with Uyghurs in a Uyghur community in Dainong, in you know, Melbourne, because they were they were very nice to uh, my, my family. Because you know we just took took by any of that secular or whatever conflict we had. Um, we we would eat none none actually none none bread is very very uh, popular in, in northwest China. I think it's more of a staple dish in India as well. It's, it's very everyone eats none in India. Yeah, I was very surprised to find that out because I thought it was like a Xinjiang thing until I had Indian friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we would, you know, um, have barbecues in the backyard. I was actually um, sort of 
betrothed to a um, week, week ago um, in Dangdong. But funnily enough, around the 2000s, we, we lost all connection to those families. And now Dangdong is like a hotbed of, I guess, separatism. Yeah. So it's very sad because um, I, I no longer have those friends or families in that area because what I assume would be U.S. meddling because we, we never talked about politics when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, it's 100% the U.S. meddling. That's um, like a secret. And it, it, it's also very, very scary. Um, every time um, the topic gets brought up, um, I, I remember I was at a party and it was a week ago and we were just talking and this random Hong Kong kid comes up and is like, hey, you're Uyghur, right? I heard you're being oppressed. And this Uyghur girl, you know, she just came from China like two years ago and she's like, no, what are you talking about? And, and 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 then they got into an argument. Anyways, he was really weird. Yeah, and she's like, "I'm not oppressed." And and this Hong Kong kid's like, "No, you are." <laughs> what I noticed with a lot of, at least with the West rumors, one was when they just went to this random apartment and started. It looked like what happened is they never did. They just like barged in rudely to these older people's apartment and confused them. Like it was like a lot of white reporters. Um, and this was a, then it was like a CNN piece. And it looked like there were elderly people who didn't quite understand whatever they were saying. And they were like, sure, yes, maybe. Like they gave weird answers. And then they, they interpreted it as these elderly people schemed scared to speak to us. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. That that sounds like after meeting a lot of Western journalists in, in China, um, I, I don't want to say who because that would disclose who I am. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, I, they say some very... Awful things. Under their breath, they have said some very racist things about Chinese people. Like one, one of them even said, like you know, I don't know why he was so. He was talking about something like old Chinese men having small dicks. I'm like, what does that have to do with your journalism? Oh, I know that guy. Okay, okay, I know exactly which journalist you're talking about, and I have no idea why he's allowed inside of China. A lot of these people just weird. They just bring up all these weird sexual stuff out of nowhere. Just they're just very odd people. They just really hate. The country they're reporting in. They talk about press suppression, but yet they're still in China. And exactly. Like, report, and not enough. I mean, it's funny because sometimes they like people put me on TV shows because you can always get me to be um, <laughs> typically anti-American. <laughs> yeah. It's not because I seek to be anti-American. It's just that reality leads me to be anti-American. So they know that if they want an anti-American perspective for anything, you can get me for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is, look, I, I'll be very honest. There is a lot of discrimination towards um, uh, Uyghurs um, and to some point Chinese in some communities, I guess. Um, like I, I know when I was in the 2000s, because um, of the, after the, um, the, the bombings and the terrorist attacks, a lot of people. Are we talking about the Olympics? Uh, around that period, I guess, there was like a big stabbing and uh-huh. a lot of attacks. Uyghurs, a lot of people started mistrusting Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. Um, people wouldn't rent out the Uyghurs. Mm. Uh, people wouldn't hire Uyghurs because of the, the attacks, the terrorism. And it's very true. There is discrimination. But to say that China is killing millions of Uyghurs every year or whatever. It, every minute or just, incubator, about what we know. Yeah, it's, it, it's just crazy. Um, like, I, I, I actually got very angry. I got into a lot of fights with um, people in the early 2010s because um, there were people saying, oh, don't buy from Uyghurs because they're always scamming you or they're going to stab you or something. Oh my, that's horrible. And that, that's something that really pisses me off because, and there was people who didn't know I was Hui and they were telling me, oh, did you know Muslims are like terrorists? And they showed me links from like Fox News and Breitbart that were being mm-hmm. shared around in China. So, uh, so there were people translating um, a lot of right-wing stuff from US media into Chinese in that period as well. 
Thank you. So the question is not why China banned BBC. The question is why didn't China ban BBC since the 1930s? Yes, because <laughs> growing up, I never had Islamophobia when I was like, say, younger in China. After mm-hmm. sort of the, the war on terrorism, um, it seeped in China as well. This image of all Muslims, you know, being masked and bombing places and cutting people's heads off started uh-huh. becoming more and more pervasive, seeping in mm-hmm. the West, I guess, as well. And also Just because the West, I believe. <laughs> also because um, you know, uh, the, the CIA were funding Uyghurs to also attack Chinese train stations and stuff, which didn't help. Um, but it, 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 it is an issue. And what, what happened is I realized a lot of Uyghurs would pretend they were white people and, to, to, and they, they actually worked and they would get really high paying jobs as English teachers or something. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> some, some Uyghurs are quite white passing. Uh, yeah, some can be mm. like the movie star. Yeah. Who's was like lying. I forgot. What's his name? Arsalan or something? Dilirabha. Okay, so I'm getting him confused. There's okay, a lot. There's quite a few, yeah. They're, they're quite, yeah, it's kind of unfair though for like the, because some Uyghurs look quite dark. I mean, Uyghurs itself is a quite a broad term of unified sort of groups of Turkic people. So not all of them look the same. Mm-hmm. So some of them are quite, you know, Iranian, you know. Basically, they look anything from very Russian to very Arab and it's like a linear combination. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not one. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. So you can find a lot of different, but yeah, there's a big range. But the of really sort of white passing ones, they get promoted a lot and get a lot of privilege, but the really dark looking ones, um, as is the most of the world, there's a lot of racism to people who have darker skin. Um, they get mm-hmm. a lot of um, discrimination. It's quite unfair. And I, I've started to see that sort of seep into the white communities as well, because, um, you know, um, there was this one girl I was in Beijing and she was like, did you know a lot of Chinese chili sauce, like Logan Ma, you know, I know you heard of it is halal certified and that's increasing costs for the Han Chinese. Like, mm-hmm. When did you read that? And she showed me a link to like some, it was actually an article from an Australian um, who was talking about halal foods increasing money, but translated into Chinese. And that, was that that politician, Danny something? No, I think it was Nalia? like a Pauline Hansen or something. I can't remember, something like that. Yeah. And, and I was just like, wow, how did you get this? It's like, yeah, you know, they have all these WeChat groups or WeChat channel, like public pages that translate really right-wing sources into Chinese. And some of them are actually run by Westerners, like white people who teach English in China, spreading the anti-Islamic propaganda in China. And I, I, was got, I got really angry and I actually ended up reporting her to her university. I'm like, this woman is Islamophobic. I don't know what happened because I didn't follow up on it. But I love this guy who's he says really stupid things all the time. So he has really bad China takes often. But my favorite saying of his is... Um, uh, we don't need gun control. We need cracker control. So, like, white people should not be allowed inside. I'm sorry. I'm just like, like, if they're going to spread, like, a hate or whatever, like, they should not be allowed. They don't have a right to do that. Some of the white people I met in China, some of them are amazingly um, very uh, good people. Um, you know, I wouldn't go that far. But, yeah, there, there's a lot of people that, you know, like um, Winston Sturzel, that um, Stepenza. All the videos he makes are like, you know, Chinese people scamming me. Chinese people are doing this and that and that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how he was able to get away with that and live in China for like a decade, basically, just making videos about how evil Chinese people were. And Maybe well, because China's not authoritarian. Well, only in some parts. But yeah, there's, there's, uh, there are issues in Chinese state as well. Like uh, my aunt used to be just the average everyday bureaucrat and she was able to get a free house just from, the, from working in the state uh-huh. government. And what eventually happened was because... Uh, property was privatized that no longer uh-huh. was possible in China and I, I realized how good that system was where you can just work and get a free house yeah and a lot of you know younger Chinese people like say why can't we just have that back 
instead of having to pay you know, property developers. But yeah, that, those people really pissed me off. Like the, the rich property developers, you know, all the new Nova rich in China. Wait, well, how come they still exist? Well, the, the, the idea plan? is that, you know, you develop the economy up and ra- raise the bottom line of living standards for everyone else. And it's so, so far it has worked. So you, you eventually you get everyone out of poverty, and but there will be a few people who will get very rich. You know, I, I have a lot of critique on that issue. You know, it sounds a lot like trickle down. It's not. But it's not. At the end of the day, the, a, a huge chunk of the Chinese economy is still run by the state. Um, there are still, there are actually working state services, um, from what I can see, and there's a very strong infrastructure maintenance, unlike America, where it seems to be falling apart. Uh, they have very strong transport. The, the healthcare system has issues, but it's still better than, than the US. I mean, it's improving. Like I, I used to be very critical of it, then, but then I realized how wealthy people that used, used to struggle to even eat, like say, meat every week. Uh-huh. Wouldn't be able to um, now. They're now earning like ten thousand USD a year, and they have you know their own houses, their own cars, and universities and, free. So like a lot. Yeah, so yeah, the thing is that it's so crazy. the thing is that the same. You don't have the same amount of expenses. So while ten thousand dollars may seem like not much, because you don't have the same expenses, you can live much better. Yeah, especially right? if you go live in your hometown. Um, like I, I remember meeting some Vietnamese students, and and they were talking about rent, and I re- realized their rent one year was. Up roughly 500 RMB because they were living on uni campuses, and that's 100 USD a month, a year, for their whole year's and rent for to live on campus. I'm like, what? Wow, that's how cool. much was your rent in China? Depends where you lived. Um, if you live in the suburbs, it was like 400. I mean, it's all about the region. In Beijing, it's very expensive. You know, you'll take a thousand USD a month, but if it's like in the suburbs, you'll be a few hundred or a month. Yeah. Wow. Basically, if you have a job near Beijing, it makes sure that everyone can kind of afford to live near there, right? Yeah, but you still have a lot of share houses. I mean, Beijing, Shanghai, you know, the big four, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, they, they all, they're all quite expensive and pricing people out. But if you live in like, you know, just your everyday area, you can, you can basically rent like a two or three bedroom for yourself with like, you know, a few hundred USD a month. So when did you go to China? I can't discuss. I, I've, I've been there in the 2010s. Uh, I've worked there uh-huh. for a bit. There are some things I don't agree with. Like the work culture, there's a lot of Japanese influence, it feels like, where you have to work long hours. Why? Is, is that an Asian thing, you think? Or is it? I'm not sure. Beauty? Yeah, it, it's very stupid. But apparently that doesn't happen in the state-owned enterprises. Like state, not okay. the state government, sorry, not state-owned. But state enterprises still do that sometimes. So it's probably, if, if I was to live in China, like, I can't work in the state government because I'm not a Chinese citizen, but that would probably seem like the best best deal if you could get it. You know, you actually get your rights up there. Yeah, it, it's very interesting because uh, there's a lot of people you talk to tw- 20 or 30 years ago, they were happy just to be able to have a full stomach. And now they mm-hmm. get way more than that. And they're just so happy to be alive. That's why people in China are so positive about the future. Stability has never happened in all the history of China. There's you know, m- hundreds of millions of people that can you know, live in a high standard of living. Yeah. It's just crazy. What I notice, at least with Chinese government officials that I've been in contact with, they're a lot more relaxed. They're joking all the time and being really funny. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very daddyish, bad jokes. Um, and, the, and the female ones also have the mom jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they're like Indian dad jokes, not American dad jokes. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot, but they so it, but they're relaxed, and you're seeing there's a different culture where they're much more relaxed. Uh, so. I guess I see that there's a big cultural difference. Sometimes I don't know whether it's because of communism or because China is an ancient culture, and that's the hardest for me to navigate. Well, Chinese bureaucracy in itself is a whole different animal. I think it's the longest living civil service that's like sort of 
you know, China's had, had a civil service for over, like a centralized one for over 2000 years. And um, it's always, it's been for a long part of history based on meritocracy through uh-huh. imperial exams. As I said before, that's one of the few ways you can get up in society if you're from a poor family. So, and the, and the civil service is very much well-controlled, very well-serviced, you know, even say 2000 years ago, there were like, you know, bureaus for um, like post and postal systems and all this, and that you would not have seen in a lot of, well, they, they, you know, they, they were ruled by the Romans back then, probably about a similar equivalent, but yeah, but the, but the bureaucracy in China is, is amazing. Um, and they're always trying to cut off on a red tape. Um, and the mo- main thing of it is to basically provide for the people and, it's a, it's a very, as is every civil service, but a Chinese one, there's a lot of pride to be a public servant. So if for somebody, let's say they don't know much about China, like how do you identify whether it, how do I explain it? If it's a Chinese cultural um, issue, because Americans are so brainwashed against communism, you can tell them that this is a Chinese cultural thing and you're being ra- racist. But if it's a communist cultural Thing. I know it sounds weird, but how do you figure that out besides reading lots of history books? That's a good question, actually. That's that's pretty complicated because a lot of Americans project their own issues onto China. Yes, both sides. I, I hate both of them. Yeah. Um, like they talk about anti-Black racism in China. And the thing is, yeah, there is, you know, discrimination in some forms, but it's nowhere near the level of Americans. Like um, there are no yeah. police going around killing Africans or an, anyone <laughs> yeah in general um and they, they always point out a one case of that one McDonald's which was right where but he was holding a child hostage oh no that's different that was a thing so there was one one case of a, a McDonald's which didn't want black people in it in China and that's been uh-huh. brought up a hundred times and that that McDonald's has been punished by the state by the state right away as it is okay by now. the way um okay in that case i'm very suspicious so i bet you it was probably like never mind i'm not gonna say that i'll figure this out i mean we'll, 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 we'll just take it that was like 2019 ah it's recent okay so that was punished right away because when when i was in china um i i met a lot of um african diaspora and they were very well integrated in Chinese society they could speak fluent Chinese you know they, they a lot of them had mixed families with Chinese people um that then they told me there was some discrimination but it was not nowhere near on a level of what they you know they see on the news in America nowhere near mm-hmm. and the thing is the Chinese government actually tries to fix it like there's a huge strong laws against any racism and you know if you're racist you're you're, you're probably gonna end up in jail and because you're breaking the harmony of the state yeah yeah for the past two years my dad's been going i forget exactly where but i'll figure this out to northern china for the summers like now that he's getting older i guess he's kind of not likes being in asia Mm. and so he said that he felt he's indian and in america he like feels a lot of racism and he's like i know there's no racism in china like that so it seems like he or maybe it's because i mean there's racism everywhere but like not on the level of america he didn't feel it yeah no, I mean, but not for okay, wait, not for India. I, I guess he didn't feel it as an Indian, is what I'm saying. I mean, Indians um, in China are probably more privileged than Chinese because I remember um, I tried to get an English teaching job and I couldn't do it because I looked Chinese, but an Indian person could because they could be like, you know, they were foreign looking. <laughs> there, there is racism in China, definitely. Like, I, I, I'm going to have this Australian Sudanese, uh, well, Australian African Sudanese person um, on my podcast soon. He basically rode through China on a bike. Uh, on a bicycle yeah, or on a motorbike? Cool, yeah. 
Wow, and across he, the country? Yeah, and he, you know, his story is quite interesting. Um, basically, in the cities, you know, people just didn't really care who he was. But once he went into like sort of the really rural areas of China, people would close doors and windows when he kept drove past because they've never seen, because he's only two meters tall he's, and he's African. And he would laugh like, oh, they never saw me before. They, they were just scared to talk to me, but they, they didn't, you know, show any violence or because they were just very scared. Like a lot of old, because a lot of the rural areas now are just filled with old people. And they're like, oh my God. And it's... Yeah. White people like are probably the reason why they're scared of foreigners because they don't know. <laughs> um, no, it, it, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. Sorry. Oh no, no, you're not. No, no, that's 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 actually a lot of reason. Like, um, there's a lot of also very big stereotypes about, about um, white people because there's been a lot of I don't know for some reason it's why it's not a stereotype if it's true. I guess yeah, there's a lot of pedophile English teachers in China for some reason. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, it's a huge yes, issue. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. It's not just China. It's all over Asia. What happens is that creepy people, like they realize that they're very poor people who are, and you see it in literally every India, Vietnam, Cambodia, Malay, like there's every single, and then they go and like molest eight-year-olds. Like uh, like, they talk, I remember they used to brag, like people knew, oh, I don't know them anymore because they're horrible people. And one of them used to brag about sleeping with their students. And he was like a 40-year-old white guy. And I'm like, what the... F-? Now I'm thinking about Because I was like 16 at the time when I was in China. I met this guy. and Yeah, yeah. Should, we should report him. A lot of them just end up fleeing the country. Good. I mean, Australia has such a big issue. There's like a travel ban on anyone with like a criminal record or something to Southeast Asia if you're Australian. You know, I, I remember when I was in Australia, there was a case where this man raped a boy in Thailand and then ran away or something. Apparently, before yeah. he could get it. Apparently, there's one of the big, world's biggest pedophiles like who had like raped hundreds of kids. It was, it was from Australia and it was a huge case that Interpol had to like step in and um, yeah, it was huge. Like there's so many, it's a huge issue in Australia. One of our um, uh, members of parliament, George Christensen, He's very anti-migration from, from Asia, but he spends a huge amount of his time in Manila, Philippines. Oh, Lord. His wife is know. from the Philippines, but he's hmm. against any migration of Asians into Australia. You know, he said, oh, God, I just, it's, it's such a stupid country sometimes, you know. Well, I think it's because he wants to have a vulnerable population who's Exploit, people are willing yeah. to sell their daughters for like $6 or whatever happens yeah, because they're disgusting. so poor. It, it, it pisses me off so much. Oh. Well, for me, what pisses me off is how poor they are. Like in India, the people that get exploited are the ones who have nothing. Like they don't even have shoes. So, like they're so poor. And so, of course, economics is going to drive these things. And you'll see parents selling their children because they're so poor and it's not their fault. That's that's what I've always been curious about, because you look at India and China, you're like there's billionaires in China, <laughs> but everyone, you know, can afford shoes or afford food. In India, that's not the same. Like what? Like it, there's a peak difference. Mao. Yeah. Mao. Mao. <laughs> Communism. So what I would say is that India was worse off, as in colonialism hit us much worse. I guess even starting in 1947, we were kind of the soft socialist country. So we were social. India says socialist on their constitution, and Nehru was very into being a socialist, but we're afraid to what what happened is that the British just had a lot of Indian soldiers in their army and it so they couldn't rely on soldiers militarizing. So they kind of had to sneak out and do it in the boycott method and like use World War Two or whatever. But you guys had a different thing where Mao actually was able to have soldiers in the army and do authoritarian crackdowns. And that's a big difference. Yeah, I, I see. And also the, the army in China is used a lot for um, aiding and sort of building and, you know, helping the people. Crackdowns. You know, and crack, yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, you have to crack down on the exploiters. So if I keep saying that India does not ha- has Modi now because we didn't have a cultural revolution, because it, it, like a lot of people don't realize like Americans tend to fetishize third world countries and be like, oh, they're exploited. But they're like nice people. But often people in third world countries can be very disgusting people. How do I explain? Like, it's like in every country in the world. Yeah, there's horrible people and good people. There's people of all types. It's very great. Yeah, the caste system, for example. The Indians were so oppressive to the caste system that you'll see that for some lower caste people, the British seemed better and they were. I could do not. Um, so then you see a lot of Christians who are originally from the lower caste system who became Christian for obvious reasons. So in the West, you might think superstitions are not so bad. But if superstitions cause people to burn their daughter-in-law to death, it's a horrible oh, thing, fuck. right? Yeah, that is that's yeah. horrible. Burning your daughter-in-law. So with Mao, he banned some superstitions like the shoe, the small shoe superstition. I forgot. Foot binding, like yeah. Is that the one where they have super small shoes? Yeah, like yeah. Luckily, a lot of toes? white Chinese didn't do that because, you know, we weren't part of that community. But um, so when you can barely walk, you can't have, you can't even think about liberation. So it might seem like crazy, but sometimes there are so many cultural factors that you can't convince these people, hey, you need to stop abusing your daughter-in-law or you can't burn her to death for demanding and demand more dowry as that's extortion. You just need to go crack down on them and fear of the authorities is going to make sure that they don't exploit their daughter-in-law and burn her to death yeah, so they can get a second dowry. There's also I realized a lot of rising anti-Chinese sentiment among even diaspora Indians. Um, like I, I remember, um, I know I'm in an Uber, the, the Indian driver um, would be like, oh, are you from China? I'm like, no, but I'm my Chinese background. And they would just instantly start talking about all the evils of China, you know, about how China occupied, invaded Tibet and took over from India and stuff. And I'm just like, what's going on recently? It's okay. So in India, what happened is that around independence time, the Brahmins kind of got together and they were like on the side of the British. That's why we don't have Christians in India, because the Brahmins collaborated with the British. So the Mughals were really awesome for most Hindus. So they got rid of the dowry, right? Like where you buy the woman? Um, yeah. But like basically, women did not have very many rights in, in Xinjiang, in certain communities. Um, I remember when I was a kid, the, the Uyghur communities around us, like uh, one of the biggest memories I remember was the, the man beating the wife in oh front my. of the kids. And oh, that, that would never, okay. You know, I'm, 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 of course, not Uyghur, all Uyghurs, right? But that was a very, you know, it's very common among that. Because in Unhui Chinese culture, um, women are 100% equal because of a breakaway from Mecca and Saudi. Um, the, the, the Uyghurs, you know, that because they, they're, they're different ethnic group some some of them especially because they live in very remote communities still have very conservative ideas some of them from the medieval medieval times and it's also a really bad stereotype because then some Uyghurs get stereotyped as being from that kind of community Mm -hmm. um, where they have child marriage you know ownership of women uh, polygamy and all that yes so what i noticed is that with the british it's kind of weird because Usually the British send Christian missionaries everywhere. Mm. But I checked these like proceedings from like 1800 in India. And the guy who's the owner of the East India Company was like, no, Hindus are very conservative. So Christians cannot go and tour India. No, 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 no. And he was like trying his best to stop Danish people from coming in. And a lot of people don't realize that's why there are Hindus in India today is because the Brahmins collaborated and it was convenient for the East India Company to have Hindus who were uh, traders, basically. (laughs) Um, 
And I'm just saying that like the, a lot of the upper caste were complete traitors. And so, mm. so what happened is that during the Quit India movement, when, when people in India wanted to kick the British out, these group of people collaborated with the British and some of them also like went to Nazi Germany and there's an Indian Nazi brigade where they joined in often after the war, somehow a lot of them were back, somehow back in India. And so they were the remnants of the RSS, which is like this like crazy oh, extremist. Oh, yeah, I've heard of them, yeah. Yeah, they have, like, they're crazy like, Twitter fans, yeah. That tag just randomly and like send weird crazy messages to you in DMs. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Oh, yeah. Okay, what happened is that Modi was basically saying something about Happy Independence Day from the BJP. And so I said, list of things the RSS did for Indian independence. And then I said, intentionally left blank. <laughs> As in, they, they've collaborated with the British. That's why I said intentionally left blank. And so, yeah, I did get a big harassment campaign and whatever. But thankfully, like they didn't do a crackdown, which they should have. But they thought if they controlled the laws and not doing a crackdown, but just a, oh, let's make this illegal, this illegal, kind of in the bourgeoisie way, they thought they could fix it. But unfortunately, what happened is that Silicon Valley came alive. So a lot of these people were already Brahmins. And then they went to Silicon Valley and made millions and trillions and gazillion bucks and now they had these like non-profits so there's one fake non-profit that's like oh we're gonna like teach kids in india how to quit smoking it's like yeah that's really a problem that's right definitely um, not the biggest problem <laughs> yeah exactly it's, a, it's totally so, but it was a money laundering scheme so what they do is these tech bros from they live in silicon valley they had infinite money so they'd open these ngos and then um so then they would hire like a right-wing extremist, like a, a Brahmin, Sangi, North, like North Indian culture, like they think that South India is inferior because we have too many Muslims or whatever. They're just very anti-South India. They're anti-lower caste. They're anti-Muslim. They're, they love Christians for, uh, or white people. But um, anyways, so because in so around the 90s, they started funding them more and more. And then before they even realized it, like Indian government didn't even realize that these People are having these extremists. Suddenly, the BJP ends up in power. And again, Modi also won because he got funded by all these like billionaires from Silicon Valley. And they have this crazy libertarian doctrine combined with extreme traditional Hindu caste system. Mm -hmm. And so it is a product of basically capitalism, Silicon Valley, and money funneling in from those private rich people in Silicon Valley. So it's it's an import re-imported ideology, yeah, if that makes sense. So they, they were able to get it under control from 1947 to about 1990. But then the tech industry just screwed everything up. And now we have to deal with this. So like in the 90s, like it seemed like, oh, there's so many jobs coming, but people didn't realize that fascism also came with the jobs. That's, 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 <laughs> that's one of the things that really worried me about China recently um, until they cracked down on Jack Ma. Because there's a lot of worship of tech bros in China as well. They worship people like Jack Ma and Robin Lee and stuff. And I noticed some, lots of Indians worship that um, Google CEO guy in Australia. The, Which one? The, the one in America. Who, the, the, there's an Indian background CEO um, for Google. Also, all of them. Okay. Um, there's a lot of actually there's a lot of Indian CEOs um, in, I know, in and, 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 and they worship the and they buy like their books and their talks and they read them and I'm just like okay nice well, well the problem is that those people are funding fascism in India yeah and that, that's what I was worried about um, 
Jack Ma because he was building like a cult personality. Ah. People were like, um, like, oh man, he's so cool. He makes so much money. And it, it really was kind of disgusting. Like they were like, just like, I wish I was. Alibaba is like your version of, like the Chinese version like Amazon, of Amazon, right? Sort of, yeah. It, 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 it was good when they cracked out on him and man was like, look, you know who's boss? The, the, the state's the boss. So shut up, Jack Ma. Yes. And they put him in like a little, yeah. And now he's just like a spokesperson for um, the state in a way. Is good. Good. And I think that needs to be done as well in um, India because I, I hate those, you know, weird um, people who migrate overseas and they start spouting what he's like, yeah, man, I've got to get my kids into Harvard or something. And they like put a hundred tutors to the kids and they worship. Yes, like, that's exactly what happens. That's exactly, and they worship exactly, Steve Jobs. Exactly and it's like, did you know Steve yes, Jobs yes, yes, did yes, this? Yes. I'm like, dude, if you worship Steve Jobs, don't you know you dropped out? Why don't you just make your kids drop out then? <laughs> just, <laughs> anyway, I hope those, there's a lot of those people in China as well and the Chinese parents and they're the worst. And look, there's a lot of Taiwanese people like that. And they're like, yeah, man, you're going to be the next Bill Gates. I'm like, dude, Bill Gates is from a very rich family. It's not, you can't just be the next Bill Gates. No, his grandfather was the banker in Seattle. And his mom was on the board of directors of some rich NGO. Yeah. And the IBM CEO was on the same board of directors. And uh, his mom got him the first contract with IBM. Yeah. Yeah, basically, like they had millions of dollars of net worth before he even started. And so it wasn't just some any dropout, you know. Um, and plus, he went to Harvard. So dropping out of Harvard, you still have a lot of connections with the Ivy League. Mm-hmm. But if his mom is on, is for a banker's. That's a huge like amount a, of connections. Like a, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's this kind of idea, this aspirational um, Asian idea that really annoys me that, like, if I work hard enough, I can eventually get up there. But at the end of the mm-hmm. day, if, if you do, you, you become one of them. You're no longer really part of the community. You, you, you end up espousing these disgusting trickle-down ideas um, to, the re- to your home countries and making life, lives worse for everyone else. You know? What does it matter? Yeah, if, what, who, who's the CEO of, of um, Google now? I can't remember. I, I can't remember either. But it's, uh, he's, by the way, um, if anyone from Silicon Valley is listening... Do not put any more Indian CEOs um, at all. You are hurting India by doing and, this. Oh, Sundar Pichai, whatever. Sundar Pichai. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he went to IIT. I see that. What is this IIT thing? A lot of Indians uh, okay, brag so about it. IIT is great. <laughs> okay, so IIT is really good because Nehru realized that like, with the British, they didn't build schools or anything. So our literacy rate, as in people who knew how to read, was about 12%. We were, like I said, we were much worse off than China in the starting position even. And then he knew that the CIA and America and the British were all horrible people. So he knew that we had to get nuclear bombs immediately to protect ourselves from coups. So he built all these science institutes where it's a lot like the Chinese civil service. Like it's, there's like no corruption as, as in everyone like takes this. It's a lot like there are these exams that it's kind of like the SATs in America that people take in 10th grade. And whoever passes that exam like or gets some score, basically it's about 5 million take it and maybe like 100,000 get in. But it helped a lot in India because we A, got nukes. So then we didn't get, and then we got to kick out the CIA from our country forever. And that is what probably saved India from becoming like Chile or uh, Nicaragua or any other Indonesia. Like we didn't have those death squads from the CIA because of Nehru's foresight. But what happened is that unfortunately Silicon Valley happened and then they realized that they can get a lot of very well-trained engineers to come to the US. Yeah, and so it's like both a blessing and a curse. 
Yeah, that's that. I guess what you mean. It's sort of like the Gaokao system in China, where you know everyone does exams to get into the top unis, and mm-hmm. that that system itself is very oppressive. Um, it, it needs a lot of reform. There's a lot of uh, areas fixed, but in their own day, but it, it also you know in a way allows Chinese people to go from you know um, poverty to success. Um, you know, become yes. well educated. Even you're from same in India. It's yeah. like almost free. Mm, yeah. That's similar, and then now you got a lot of you know very um, well trained professionals in China being recruited by the American Empire, become their PMC class, the PMC, and you know it's yes, thing. exactly. That's that's exactly. So, yeah, you got all those weird Chinese blue ticks who just speak on behalf of the American Empire. <laughs> yeah, so in India, it's a little bit more taboo to speak on behalf of the white person. So that's why they had to add the Hindu nationalism, fascism aspect. So they pretend it's they're actually speaking about true Indian culture before the Mughals polluted, but true Indian cultures before the Muslims was horrible. And none of us ever want to go there. It's like, it was a lot like Tibet. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Whenever there's Han sort of traditional culture stuff, um, like really conservative stuff, that stuff gets shut down in China really quickly as a joke. But. Exactly. But without the Mughals, we would be totally like Tibet. But instead, we had a vibrant civilization. We were the richest country. We were had like golden years. We had excellent things like until the British came. But unfortunately, they didn't realize that Mughals did so much to build our civilization. Wow. But because of that, they put an imaginary civilization that didn't really exist anywhere. All I ever hear about the Mughals is they built the Taj Mahal and spent a lot of money. That's so. That's all I ever get from Western education. <laughs> okay, they basically did a lot more. Um, Akbar Nama is is um, Akbar means great man. So that's not his real name, but everyone in India calls him Akbar because of how good he yeah. was. He had a universal education system, um, and then he also, like, what people don't realize is with Jahangir. He actually had all these factories and industry, but they weren't privatized in the like they they were in a different system with like the traditional Indian system, and it, but then the East India Company came in D and like bom- basically bombed all the factories, and um, burnt all the clothes, and then basically converted the entire country into a plantation, and uh, so, but because of they did so much work building so much civilization the BJP could like make up a fake story of a better civilization existing before them, if that makes sense. Oh, okay, I see. So that, that's the very different part from um, Chinese history where the, the Qing, you know, they were, you know, at, the, at that time seen as foreigners. They're still very much seen as um, people are still be able to see the good and bad, what they did um, for China during their rule. Mm-hmm. You know, they, met, they had a very strong ideology of Zhonghua Minchu, which is like this small China under sort of one na- nationality, no matter what culture you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also set up, um, you know, a, a, in a way, a caste system, but also a very multicultural society mm-hmm. in China. And, um, you know, Chinese people aren't, aren't going to be like, oh man, the Qing, we're horrible invaders. Because nowadays Manchus are just seen as, you know, Chinese people. And we, we don't mm-hmm. have any sort of huge grudge against them. Well, in India, there's like this, from what I see, sometimes this hate against Muslims as invaders and, you know, um, yeah. Well, no, no. This is why it happened. Because basically the victor gets to write the spoils, right? Yeah. So the people who collaborated with the British were 
the um, Brahmins who had lost their power when the Muslims came and enacted good stuff. Okay. In India, without Muslims, like we would be a backwards last civilization. Like, oh. uh, yeah. Muslims like basically gave us half our civil, most of our civilization. Yeah, but I just see a lot of animosity from some reason. I know, but I'm yeah. explaining why. Yeah. So then when these Brahmins who collaborated with the British got into power or in the 1700s, they basically were like, oh, yeah, we're actually real. Like they had the Indian face, but they were like the British puppets. Hmm. But they were claiming that, yeah, the Muslims were invaders. And that fake story of the British collaborators because of imperialism stayed within the upper class. Hmm. And that's how the propaganda spread, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if, if you look at history long enough, everyone in a way <laughs> is an invader. <laughs> like if you look at the earliest Chinese people, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, like, like let's not talk about the mythical dynasties. Let's talk about the Shang Dynasty, which has some evidence, more more evidence. Okay, mm-hmm. They were conquered by the Zhao, the Zhou, you know, that the mm-hmm. H-O-U, that the people of that surname, you know, is a very common surname. Mm-hmm. And that the Zhou were from like the West, like um, around where Chang'an, Xi'an is, and and that mm-hmm. that area back then would have been seen like as like the you know the the, the the really far away suburbs, like barbarians rode horses. And and you see this keep happening, and they another thing is that the, the ruler itself they're always like say the Tang Wuling Li family they were half Turkic Shembe, a proto Mongolian themselves, um, but you know the thing is China has a very strong assimilative culture where they don't you know like eventually you become Chinese. India does not. We have a very fractured. Like there are trillions of languages and no one's mutually unintelligible. We have our own script. Like everything's a little fractured. So does, does every language have their own script as well? Or? Yeah, basically. Oh, okay. Because at least in Chinese, we have, you know, one script. <laughs> we don't. We have thousands of scripts and you, it's, it was always fractured that way. But because of that fractured identity, like the British could, could take advantage. Because when you go on that downhill path of colonialism and you let the British run away, like they'll just screw Everything. They're very good at divide and conquer British. They, they, they can divide you for so long. Yeah. E- exactly. So, <laughs> like I said, India had it much worse than China with regards to colonialism. Yeah, and so it's a lot harder to get rid of all the... Uh, so if we had somebody like Mao and it was possible to raise an army and go do the Cultural Revolution in the 1940s, I I think it would have been, we would not have Uh, had Modi. Yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely see what you mean, like, uh, 100%, like, especially just one city, you know, that in Hong Kong, that is that that much division. I can't imagine Mm -hmm. if the British conquered all of China, how much division there would be. (laughs) You know, they've probably been, like, instituting bloody Beijingism or something to like the independent Beijing state, or whatever the crap they're going to do. <laughs> yeah. It's literally that. I, I mean, and, and that's exactly kind of, and the thing is, it's just like, there's so many other factors that it's just really hard to get out of the, the, uh, the grasp of the empire. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, still to this day, they, um, the, 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 um, the Hong Kongers think they're like a higher class, of Chinese because of their associations with the British. Uh, yeah, you know, that, that, that's a sad thing. But there are a lot of Hong Kongers who are also woke and can see through that crap. But sadly, they don't get a voice in the Western media, which is no. sad. Because, um, you know... Yeah. So, I don't know if I'm Western media, but we need more independent media because we don't get to, yeah, put voices of um, everyone who's 
not in line with the State Department. And also, um, do you want to give us a quick plug about your podcast, how to find you and how to support you? Um, well, I don't really need support at the moment, but um, just buy your billabong if you want to. So if you... What's the URL? Um, so we usually just put on Podbean, but if you follow us on, follow me on Twitter at Still Muslim, you'll, have, you'll see a link there. Um, basically, the whole podcast is about Chinese Australian issues. So it's very niche, but we've had some uh, pretty good guests as well in terms of debunking a lot of Chinese stuff like the famine and all that stuff that never happened in China. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, looking, looking forward to an episode of the um, African Australian guy who rode through China. Oh, that would be great. And uh, yeah, I would love to play that. He also went to uh, Afghanistan, so- which is also interesting. <laughs> Yeah. Definitely. Um, so we'll just put the link in the description box for both of those episodes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Thank, you, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much, Esha. Sorry, rambled on for quite a bit. No, while. no, you were the most informative one. You've covered about a thousand years of or Yeah, but very, history. very chill. <laughs> no, it's fine because most people don't even know that. So yeah, it's true. like you're giving them like a quick taste of every it's like it's not a gourmet meal it's like you know a dim sum where you get a little toast of everything right yeah yeah that's Cantonese culture but that's very true <laughs> i love i love yum cha though i love yum cha okay do hoi muslims do a dim sum or no with our own cuisine you should try it out actually if you ever do come to melbourne i will show you um, i've never had it um, yeah have you had those beef noodle shops yes uh, yes yes I've, I've, not the beef but i've had a noodle shop yeah well the beef noodle this is a lot of influence from Hui Muslims. Um, mm-hmm. Also, um, have you had that taste of Xi'an, that Xi'an traditional no. cuisine? Uh, that's also a lot of Northern Chinese food is very uh, influenced heavily by our cooking. If you go to Beijing, a lot of the oldest restaurants are opened by Chinese Muslims. Because mm-hmm. yeah, you got to remember, they didn't used to eat cows back in China until we, we came. <laughs> Sorry, because you're Hindu. You probably don't eat. No, we don't care. Okay, the thing about Hinduism is the the okay. It's kind of like the kosher rule of but not mixing the meat in the mother's milk. It's literally that rule, but they enforce that rule by banning beef as opposed to doing the thousands of things that uh, the Jews do. Like it's literally that rule. And we also have we all kind of have OCD about hygiene um, in cooking. Well, no, it's not OCD. It's before antibiotics, uh, tropical area like. Oh no, no, I'm talking about way Muslims. We do, yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, so, but no, I don't think it's OCD. I think it's life before refrigeration. Oh, okay. Because our, our restaurants are super clean. Um, because of life, because you guys have had a culture where you didn't have refrigeration until like a long time. And so you had to learn mm. how to make sure things didn't rot, right? True, true. But okay. That's probably probably why instead of the religious reasons. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the logical reasons. It's usually- yeah, true. Mm. I mean, the religion's reasons came because you didn't yeah. want people to like poison because there's, so that's why you had, they didn't quite know, but they realized like, oh, if you kept this separate from that and it had a reason before the technology, but I think a lot of the religious things did not end when the technology came, if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, every time you have ramen, you got to thank the Hui Muslims because, uh, actually not the, that ramen because it's Chinese ramen, but ramen, ramen means lamian. It's translated from lamian, which is the pulled noodles. That the Hui Chinese. Oh do. yes, I yeah. love the pulled noodles. Yeah, that's our that's our dish. So our contribution. I did it. not know that. Yeah, and uh, we have a cartel for that. Well, some areas. Yeah, you have to be Hui Chinese. That's another story. And thank you for having me on, Esha. Um, pleasure. Uh, uh, Learned a lot about get, but, So, do competing competing like Hui Chinese like go on noodle wars where they shoot each? No. No, there was a story oh, no, in no. Shanghai where a Han guy opened his 
near the restaurant, and the Hui Chinese guy is all like ganged up on him because you're not meant <laughs> to have it if you're Han. You only Hui Chai's the noodle restaurants. Yeah. Okay, so they actually had like a turf war. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. All right. Anyway, okay. thanks, Esha. I'll see you. Thanks、around. for coming and have a, a good rest of the day. You too. Thanks. Bye.、Okay. Bye bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.